Well, hey everyone, welcome to RUF. If I haven't met you, I'm Daniel. I'm, I'm the guy intern, man intern here with RUF. And um, tonight we're continuing in Exodus. We're at Exodus 12. And I think tonight's passage is pretty heavy. It's pretty weighty and um, can be hard. And so know that if, when we're going through this, please reach out to me, Sammy, Caroline to talk. We would love to talk because we're talking about guilt um, and guilt is something that all of us endure, all of us deal with. And so um, before we get started, um, I'm going to give credit where credit's due um, with Sammy. Had a lot of help from Sammy on this sermon tonight and Philip Reichen. So um, that being said, I'm going to pray and we'll dig in. So bow your heads. Jesus, we come to you from so many different angles. We come to you, um, some feeling great, some in disbelief that spring break's over and we have to jump back into school. I mean, that's the most dreadful thing in the world. Um, and we feel like we're just drowning. Father, um, some of us are excited to be here. Some of us don't know why we're here. Um, but Father, you have us here for a reason. And, um, we pray, we beseech thee, that um, you would open our eyes, open our hearts um, to you and your heart that you would show us your grace and your mercy through your scriptures tonight. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. So I'm going to start. We're going to go Exodus 12, 3 through 13, and then we're going to jump down to verses 21 through 32. So follow along in your handout if you would like. Exodus 12, starting verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel... That on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and with the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood 
that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until the next morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Up, go out from among my people, both of you, and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So that was a hefty chunk of scripture. Hope y'all could bear with me through that. Um, but first I'm going to tell a story of when I was a kid. I was probably 11 or 12 at the time. And as a kid, when I was young, Razor scooters were all the rage. If you didn't have a Razor scooter, first off, you weren't cool. But, um, I mean, truly, like, Razor scooters were the thing. But, of course, like, just riding a Razor scooter outside wasn't enough for me. Like, I had to have it with me all the time. So I would ride it outside, and then when I came inside, I would bring it with me and ride it around the house. Of course, um, my mother really loved when I <laughs> rode my Razor scooter inside. No, she hated it. Of course she hated it. And, um... She would tell me time and time again, Daniel, take it outside. Daniel, take it outside. Please, not in the house. But me being all wise, like 11 years old, decided, no, I should ride it inside still. And I'll never forget this one day. In my kitchen, there's these big windows, and they're made of glass. And I decided to be really cool. And, you know, like you kick the razor scooter, and it spins around, and then you land on it. So I was trying to attempt one of those tricks in the kitchen uh, with my brother, and I did this spin, and before the razor scooter could come around, it got stopped by the window. So if the window had not been there, I totally would have landed it. <laughs> but the window was there, and so the window completely shattered, which was terrifying. My parents weren't home, and I was so scared that when they got back, I was just going to have it. I was just going to have all of it. And um, so they get home and it was terrible. But I had this like deep feeling of guilt, right? Guilt that I had done something I wasn't supposed to. Guilt that I broke something because I was doing what I was not supposed to. Um, guilt that I was going to make my parents upset. All these things. And so tonight what we're going to look at is what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with it? Um, a lot of us don't even really know what we do with our guilt. Um, 
We're going to look at the weight of the things that we have done, that we ought not to have done. And we're going to look at the things that we've left undone that should have been done. So looking back to the passage, there's two things we have to understand about the tenth plague in order to fully understand it. So we've done all the plagues up until now, and we're trying to understand this final plague, right? Where there's death and this is the Passover. It's a lot to take in. So the two things that we need to learn to understand it fully are, is that the plague was also directed at Israel. It wasn't only directed at Egypt, it was also directed at Israel. And second, the whole idea of the firstborn and why that's significant. So, first, the plague was not just directed at Egypt. So, equally, Egyptians and Israelites were indebted to Jesus, right? Or indebted to God. They were sinful, were blemished, or were not blemishless before the throne. So I think a lot of times when we read this story, we see the Egyptians as the bad guys and the Israelites as the good guys, right? We see that and we think, oh, this is totally about the Egyptians. That's why all the Egyptians died. And that's not true um, because if the Israelites had not done what they were told, um, they would have had their firstborn killed as well. And so um, they were under the same judgment as we all are under the same judgment before the Lord. As Philip Ryken says, the tenth plague was a sign of God's judgment against all humanity. It was not a sign of God's judgment against Egypt. It was a sign of God's judgment against all of humanity. So both parties were guilty. They had both rejected the Lord in their own ways, rebelled against him. Um, so if you look at um, your handout, there's this quote from by Herman Melville that I think is helpful. It says, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadful, cracked about the head, and sadly need mending. We are all cracked about the head, right? None of us stand um, with our deeds perfect before the Lord. So that's, that's the first thing you're going to understand. Um, second is this idea of the firstborn. We've mentioned it plenty of times um, already. Pharaoh had angered the Lord by coming after his firstborn son of Israel. God himself had come against Moses' son, uh, firstborn son in the confounding bridegroom of blood passage. So what is the whole deal with the firstborn. So this idea first comes up in Genesis 22. The Lord asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, his firstborn son. And Abraham, he didn't panic. He didn't flinch. He didn't question the Lord. Lord, why do you want me to kill my son? Um, and it wasn't just a question of, um, or it wasn't just an act of blind faith. It was deeper than that. Abraham understood um, his culture and um, the Lord's heart. The firstborn basically represents the family, the future of the family. Not in an individualistic way, but a, in a representative communal way. So here, he bore not just the name of the family, but the sins of the family. What Abraham understood that we miss so, so often is that there was such a debt of sin, such a pile-up of mess-ups, that for God to require him to kill his son wasn't just fair. It was righteous. There was so much sin that Abraham knew 
that it wasn't just fair of God to ask for the life of his firstborn son, but it was righteous. And that's because all of our lives have been consumed in sin, and that, therefore, our lives are forfeit to God. So think back to the story of the Razor Scooter. So I broke the window, right? And my parents came home. It was not pretty. But all that to say, my parents could have looked at me, and they could have said, Daniel, it's totally okay. We told you a million times to not ride your scooter inside. You did anyways, but it's okay. You're forgiven. Could have done that, right? But regardless, there's still a window that has to be fixed. Just them saying, like, you're forgiven, you are sorry, doesn't fix the window. The window still needs to be fixed. There's a payment that needs to be made, right? Either me or them. Um, and so there's this quote by Sigrid Unset. Um, I don't know if that's the book. By Kristen Levrent's daughter. Even better. Um, it's on the front of her handout. And it's, it goes, I've done many things that I thought would never dare to do because they were sins. But I didn't realize then that the consequence of sin is that you have to trample on other people. This points so much to our sin does trample on other people. It doesn't just affect us doesn't just affect God, it affects other people too. Sin robs God, but not just God, others as well, of the glory and honor and love that they rightly deserve. Trampling on them is a consequence of sin. And I, I don't think we're ever going to understand Passover until we understand guilt and what sin has done and what it deserves. And I think a lot of us intellectually would um, agree that we're sinful, or that we're broken, that we're messed up. But I feel like subjectively, as people, a lot of times we don't actually think we're that bad. We really don't think we're that bad. We don't feel our guilt as we should. We read a text like Exodus 12, and we're not offended by our sin as much as we should be. Um, the way that God sees it. C.S. Lewis has this quote on the front of your handout. It goes like this. I think it says it well. The greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the evangelical. Evangelium, the good news. Um, it promised healing to those who knew they were sick. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And I think what Passover says is that it's not um, God who has to defend himself, but it's us, 
We're the ones that have to defend ourselves because we're so sinful. And our case is utterly hopeless. Utterly hopeless. Um, have you ever thought about how big your sin is? I feel like almost bad like bringing this up because I don't want to shame you. But the real like, the reality of how big our sin is, um, I mean, if you just want to do the math of like, hey, I sin three times a day, and then you multiply that by 365, and you multiply that by 70 or however long you live, that's a lot of sin. And that's just like a very simplistic way of just saying our sin is really big. And that's usually things that we do like wrong against somebody. But we miss a lot of times the things that we should do, that we do not do. And that's what the old book of Common Prayer, Confession, talks about, um, where it confesses the things that we have done and the things that we've left undone. And I just kind of picture um, like the debt counter in New York for the U.S. national debt. It just has like a number that just keeps growing and growing. And it's growing at a rate that is actually terrifying. Like you sit there for 30 seconds and you see like millions of dollars in debt <laughs> add up. Sometimes that's how I think about my sin. Um, kind of see it that way. And when I look at that, um, that number that just keeps growing, there's just no way it can be paid. There's like nothing, nothing that can be done to like make that number just go away. Um, our sin creates a debt to God. It creates a debt to one another that we could never possibly hope to pay or to face. And Arcade Fire has this quote that's really great that I think um, kind of says it well, where they say, do you really think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? Kind of pointing out even our best things can't even pay the interest on what our debt looks like what our debt is. But this is where the lamb kind of comes into play. Where the lamb comes into focus. That is so beautiful. So God tells them to take a spotless lamb and to sacrifice it, smear its blood on the doorposts of their houses, and the Lord will pass over them and spare his judgment. So the idea of a sacrificial lamb first came in Genesis 22, like we just were talking about, with Abraham sacrificing his firstborn son. But what happens in that story is right as Abraham is about to kill his son, sacrifice his son, God provides a ram. And he stops Abraham and tells Abraham to sacrifice the ram instead. And so here this is our first example of a lamb being paid as the payment. And so here we see a lamb for one. Then we get to Exodus 12. And we see a lamb taking the payment for an entire household. And if we look ahead in scripture, we get into Leviticus and beyond, and it becomes a lamb for an entire people. And as we get further, we get to John the Baptist, who sees Jesus begin his ministry, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see a lamb for the whole world. The Passover says that someone must pay for the debt of your sins. God would not be just, he would not be perfect and just if he simply swept it under the rug. The universe itself 
would split at the seam if God just shoved your sin under the rug and ignored it. Judgment must fall. There must be payment. There must be judgment. But what's so beautiful is he provides a lamb on which that judgment falls instead. A lamb to take away the guilt of the world. He provides it. It belongs on us, and yet he provides a lamb to take it instead. And so Jesus, uh, when he took his disciples in the upper room the night of the Passover, um, it's so interesting. All the Gospels mention that at this Passover meal they had wine and there was bread. But no one mentions any lamb. Lamb is not mentioned in this Passover meal. And that's because the lamb was with them. Telling them, telling the disciples how his body would be given for them. How his blood would be spilled for them. There was no lamb mentioned because the lamb of God, the one who all these lambs in Exodus 12 were pointing toward, was sitting there at the table being ready to be sacrificed for their sins. Philip Ryken says this. He says, It was late afternoon on the eve of the Passover. At twilight, lambs would be sacrificed by every household, according to the law of Moses. All over the city, fathers were getting ready to make the offering, gathering their families together and saying, God has provided a lamb for us. Over at the temple, the high priest was also preparing a lamb to present as an atonement for Israel's sin. Then there was Jesus hanging on a cross with the sacrificial blood flowing from his hands inside. He was the lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. So I don't know what you do with your guilt. I don't know how you handle it. Um, I don't know how you process it. Um, but there's a lamb who's conquered that sin, conquered that guilt that you have from your sin. Um, some of you never feel guilty about anything. Uh, maybe you see sin like the Pharisees. It's like a list of do's and don'ts. But your sin has so much more to do with your posture and your heart than it does with the do's and the don'ts. Um, I think a lot of us think that because we do something good, it can replace what's bad. We may not say that subjectively, but intellectually, we may think that. Um, like breaking that window in the kitchen with the razor scooter, like I can fix the window, but that doesn't take away from how upset my mom was and like how much stress it caused. It doesn't pay everything, even though the window is fixed. Some of us feel guilty about everything. Literally everything. It's hard for um, you to believe and receive that God can love you. You believe that you haven't made mistakes, but you are a mistake. Horatius Bonar says this, Did I lay my hands on the lamb in the right place? Did I leave them there long enough? Did I feel and believe enough that then and there God was forgiving my sins? Did I position my hands on correctly as I touched the lamb? He went on anxiously this way for quite some time until his friend stopped him and simply said this, It's not your hands that matter. It's entirely the lamb. I know me personally, I, I ask these kind of questions all the time. Did I lay my hands in the right place? Did I leave them there long enough? 
I just question, and I think that I, I just feel guilty about everything that happens. Um, that it's somehow my fault. But what this says is that it's not what we've done, it's the Lamb, what the Lamb has done. So what will you do with your guilt? Will you resolve to never do it again? Will you start reading your Bible every day? Will you start to go to church every Sunday? Will you start to share the gospel with your lost friends? Volunteer at a homeless shelter? Those are all good things. But they can't touch your guilt. Reading your Bible every day is really great. But it can't touch your guilt. But there is one who can. And he can take your guilt away. And that's Jesus. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He can take all our guilt, all our shame, and throw it away. And he's the only one that can. Nothing else can. So all the porn you've ever looked at, all the lies you've ever told, the gossip you've spread, the pride you've let freeze your heart, the envy and jealousy that consumes your thoughts, the ways you've cheated, the ways, ways you've failed to love your friends, your family, Ways you look down on everyone and everything. He has laid it upon Jesus. The Lamb has taken that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. Take your guilt to the Lamb tonight. Let him wash it with his cleansing blood. Let him bear it. Take your guilt to Jesus and trust in his grace. There's a Robert Cunningham quote that I think is the perfect line to leave us on. It's really comforting for us. That just says, Christian, God can't remember the sins you can't forget. Christian, God can't remember the sins you can't forget. Let's pray. Jesus, our guilt and our shame and our sin leaves us in a hole we can't get out of. Father, you graciously give a lamb to take that pain, to take the suffering for us. Father, let Jesus be the blood on our doorposts for the world to see. And Father, thank you for your son, for the guilt that is wiped away because of his payment on our behalf. We pray all this in your name. Amen. <laughs> Stand as we sing the doxology. Joe, you Alright, I got it. I got it. Praise God.